Join us at The Hedge for a conversation about engineering, technology, and business. In this episode, Russ White, Tom Ammon, and Tim Shryak dig into single source of truth. Hello, Tom. Welcome back to The Hedge. You're like, I don't know, always here. Yes, I am. (laughs) Like the furniture. I'm always here. Like the furniture. Always here. Yeah, but you move more than the furniture does. (laughs) Well, maybe. I don't know. And Tim, this is your first time on The Hedge. It's a very formal podcast. I'm glad you wore your suit and tie today because... You definitely need to. Uh, I know. I know. When I read the, uh, the the pre-work for this talk, I knew that I needed to really, you know, come properly dressed for this. That's event. right. The tuxedo. <laughs> Did you rent that tuxedo? Or do you? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I had to so, go get it ironed and everything. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Let's talk about this talk that you did at Nanog, because it was really interesting when I saw the slides, what you're talking about there, single source of truth in network automation. And I have my own thoughts about single source of truth, but let, let's talk about what where you're at there and how you think it's important and stuff like that. For sure. Um, concept came out of a project that I was working on um, at the time for building a really large scale um, cloud object store. And we were having to manage a lot of equipment um, and from that also both uh, lots of resources, whether it's physical, you know, things in the data center um, or logical. So all of the various bits of data that go with that, right? At the time we were using a lot of disconnected various tools to store that data, you know, so things in the data center were in the DCIM and, you know, logical things were in, you know, like IPAM um, and then other bits of data, like maybe VLANs were just in spreadsheets. Um, So, you know, things were just all over the place, right? And there wasn't a consistent format to store data. What seems like often happens in these kind of environments is that not only do you have disparate tools or disparate places you're storing data, you end up with duplicate data, you know, so um, particularly when it's in like a spreadsheet form or some non-database form, you end up with like, who's got the current authoritative version of the spreadsheet, right? <laughs> Where does it and, exist? And, yeah, and it's even worse than that, because when you have multiple versions, that probably means you've polled the devices multiple times, which means you've consumed CPU and network in order to pull those devices and get that information in five different formats. So that's all very bad. And even worse, if you want to go back and do data analysis on that stuff, well, you can't, right? <laughs> yep, right. You know, I mean, I suppose in some ways you could solve some of that by using something like SharePoint for your spreadsheet. So at least you've got some sort of record and some sort of centralized place where you're maintaining the spreadsheet. But this still, this this doesn't scale, right? Like this is this works if you have a very small environment um, with very few number of people that are doing the work or you know maintaining it. But I think it, it it's really just about looking at a kind of a. Um, an old way, or not old, that's not a good term, a very traditional model of the way that we have run networks for a long time, right? Um, For us, you know, for me, uh, particularly personally, uh, was first getting exposed to the DevOps model and seeing what the guys over on the compute teams were doing. And well, have been doing for a long time, right? They've been they, they've been doing this for quite a while, and uh, starting to read, uh, you know, about the Google SRE model and how that, you know, how it works there, and realizing that um, this this was this is the way that I saw how we could be successful, um, and the way that we could grow and scale what we were able to do 
uh, without having to have lots and lots and lots of more bodies. So are you talking mostly about telemetry or are you talking about mostly state of other kinds? Like, I hate to call it configuration because I don't like that word any longer. Configuration is kind of this, has this implication of CLI Mm-hmm. which isn't really true, but people put that together in their head. So are you talking about um, what you might call configuration state or state that makes the device run? Or are you talking about mostly about telemetry? So from this perspective on what we were building uh, was for uh, configuration state, definitely. Okay. Um, for allocation of resources. So whether those resources are things like IP addresses and VLANs um, or uh, physical tiles in the data center, physical locations, rack units, um, those sorts of things, maintaining those state and those resource pools and finding a way to stop treating everything like a pet. You know, like um, it, particularly, I think network engineers are really particularly, you know, have traditionally thought this way where like, you know, we really care where the switch is mounted in the rack, you know, like in what U it's in, right? Like, and, and we care that, you know, the compute team has put their first server in, you know, rack, rack unit one. And, you know, we, we have this very hands-on, handcrafted approach to, you know, uh, we, we joke about it in, in our org, you know, it's like artisanal networking, you know. <laughs> we want to have this bespoke, handcrafted packet, you know, and it, it just, you can't scale when you think that way. I think this also goes back to the, again, the CLI focus and the, which, which drives you to an appliance focus, right? Mm-hmm. Used to, and when I was in TAC, when I was in doing technical support, direct um, front-end technical support. And even when I worked on the first couple of networks that I was involved in as from an operational perspective, being on the operator side, I found that everyone wants to build a, buy a really, really big box, put it someplace, and it does everything. And then you go into the CLI and you mess around with it and make it work. So we have this very strong, much like the server guys used to have the big server sitting in the corner that did everything. And that server had to, you had to make sure you knew all the SCSIs and where everything was all the way, all the physical drives were mounted and all that kind of nonsense. We don't have that anymore in server land. And virtualization, I think, is a lot of what took that away. Uh, So what you're talking about is just getting out of that sense of that mode in the networking world. Yep. And uh, as we, oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. I I was just going to ask him, and I think you started going down this road. I've encountered different types of opposition to the idea of single source of truth whenever I've implemented it in my career. One of the things that I have, one of the things I've heard is, well, we already have all these systems. We've got this thing that's doing IPAM. We got this thing that's doing this. Why do you need another thing that nobody's going to maintain? How do you respond to that and and deal with those uh, kind of those challenges from people who oppose the idea? So this is definitely an objection we ran into, uh, particularly around IPAM. Uh, but uh, in general, yes, for, there, there's lots of naysayers um, and they come for various reasons. Uh, one of the common ones we also heard was we've tried this in the past and it failed. So uh, this was another common uh, complaint or, or why we shouldn't attempt it. What we took was uh, two things uh, to address those concerns. One, why did it fail in the past? What we saw in most use cases that other people had done uh, was something that they built very static, very custom crafted for particular forms of data. Uh, you know, DCIM is an example of that. Um, IPAM is often an example of that, where we have this very uh, statically defined database that is very good at doing one thing, as opposed to what we envisioned was a platform, uh, a platform that could be uh, flexible and extensible. So rather than, uh, for example, you know, rather than when we built uh, or designed the tables in the database for a device, we didn't build it specifically for a network device. Right? We built a table 
that could be extended and by default would be able to model any kind of device or thing that exists in the world today or in the future. So if we don't have a field in there for a particular value that maybe we need to store someday in the future, we made sure that table was flexible enough to be able to add it. Right. So build something that isn't specific to any one thing, right? That's the one thing we were looking at, right? The other reason uh, addressing the why do we not just use the various tools that we already have, IPAM, DCIM, and try to build some sort of connector between them, if you will. What we found with that is there's, first of all, we're trying to do a connectivity between various, maybe open source, maybe purchased, maybe this has an API, maybe this doesn't. Um, so we've got all kinds of various forms that we're going to try to connect these different things together, um, as well as they have their own release cycles, right? So they're doing releases on whatever schedule, and maybe they have some breaking changes. We're going to be constantly in this uh, cat and mouse game of trying to keep up with what all these various disparate tools are doing and trying to link them together. Secondly, we really wanted to be able to connect these pieces of data that historically have not been connected. So for example, I wanted to be able to have a connection between the logical resource, the IP address, and the physical device, the link that that IP address goes with, right? That's something traditionally we don't have visibility into. I didn't want a network engineer when he's um, writing his configuration to need to worry about how to go find a particular piece of data in IPAM, right? He should be able to just say, I care about this interface on this device and code should know what IP address has been allocated to that point-to-point -point link, right? And, uh, or, you know, uh, what VLAN that particular switch port belongs to. Um, it, the engineer should be abstracted from that level of detail and that level of knowledge, don't care. Right? Um, because if, if I do need to know that at a network engineering level, I cannot treat my devices and my resources as cattle. Um, this is something like I talk about a lot is, you know, pets versus cattle. You know, traditionally, we treat everything like a pet. We handcraft it and, you know, back to the artisanal idea, right? Like we want to have that bespoke cup of network. And that, that doesn't let you scale. Um, and so if you don't have this uh, rich connections between the data, can't write our uh, desired state for the devices in an abstract form. And if we can't do it in an abstract form, then we can't treat everything as, as cattle. So that's, it's kind of that, that road that just enables all of the future automation uh, and the ability to start thinking of things in, by design intent as opposed to, I care that this is a Cisco device and it's running this version of NXOS. And oh, by the way, over here, I've got a Juniper device and it's running this version of you know, OS. And you know, how, how do I deal with all those details uh, that network engineers historically have had to get wrapped up into, slowed down by, you know, complicated by? That was a really long answer, hopefully. <laughs> no, that was great. That's, that's yeah. great, yeah. I think another line of argument that I've seen used in the past is the ability to reconstruct the state of the network at any point in time in the case of failure. And if your data is scattered across 10 different systems, even your configuration state, then there's no way to correlate it to telemetry. And there's no way to correlate all these pieces together without manually doing it. Being able to say, oh, well, I put the IP addresses in the same system as the BGP configuration or the BGP neighbor state, whatever it is, I can actually see the correlation between those things now. If those are in different systems, then the correlation's gone. Unless in my head, I know to go look which is a bad, yeah. bad place for it to be. I think one of the paradigm shifts that's required when you start to think about and, and to, to, to 
move toward this way of operating uh, a network is, or an environment, not just a network, is that you need to stop thinking of the uh, current running state of a device as the authoritative source of what that state should be. The authoritative source for what should be running on a device is not what you see on the CLI. The authoritative source is what's coming out of your config management system, whether that, in, you know, deriving from your source of truth, whatever, what have, whatever that may be. And the idea that, like, um, if you do something on the CLI, it's going to go away. That's not where you make changes. Right? You make changes in your, in your config management system. And that becomes a matter of discipline internal yes. discipline, yep. right? It's no different. Than uh, a and, and a new way of thinking, right? Like, uh, definitely, I think for most network engineers, the first time they hear that, they are horrified by that idea, right? Like that, that's mm -hmm. what? No, like, I, I go look on the device to find out what the state is, and, and, or the authoritative state is. Uh, and uh, that, that's something that I think that's really difficult to wrap your head around when you first start into this world. Combined with that is the idea of item potency, which you mentioned, right? If the data center burns to the ground, I should be able to rebuild the correct state of the of the of the uh, of the network based on my source of truth and my config. My little thing about this is is that I think that we also do too much configuration. We need to figure out how to build protocols and networks that that need less configuration somehow, right? Mm. I mean, we we are at a point where we've gotten so accustomed to having BGP configs that are thousands of lines long that we don't think there's anything wrong with this. We don't think there's anything wrong with having a box with 500 lines of config or 1,000 lines of config on it and having to sort through it and figure it out. Why? Why, like, why are we doing this to ourselves? There are I so many ways of automating agree. this stuff. You yeah. Know? Yeah, the, 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 I think the goal should be that the physical fabric is as dumb as possible, right? Like, yeah, it should, it should have the barest minimum of config, absolutely. And, um, you know, I think as we see some movement into SDN, hopefully we'll start to see that become more widespread as we, as we can abstract the more complicated bits up to, the, up to higher levels at, at the application layer as opposed to down in the fabric. So when you when you were building your system, um, was there a time that you can recall just in the evolution of it when was there a, a moment when you were like, okay, we've got some momentum. This is really going to take off now. Is there a, a time you can think of and like how that happened? For sure. When we first started on the project of particularly, uh, the impetus for us to, to do this was that we were turning up large numbers of switches on a regular basis and we needed a way to scale that. And so we started for bootstrapping. Uh, and we started writing frameworks and code around doing the bootstrap process. And during that period, we were entering data by hand, copy-paste from various bits of places to, to actually build out the config and push it out to the gear. And so we, as we started building the framework to do that, we quick, one of the things we were realizing is, okay, we need a database because this is, this is crazy, right? Like we, we can't keep up with it. We're spending literally two, three days copy-pasting data in order to get ready to build the site. And uh, so when we first started talking about it, I said, okay, I know that I want to build an API-driven database that is usable for more than just us. Like, I, I don't want to build something that's only for the network team. I want to build something that other teams, the compute team, storage team, everybody in New York can use. I spent probably six months or more of just evangelizing that within the org, 
and uh, particularly, you know, convincing um, other teams or, or showing them, you know, the advantages of what we were trying to accomplish. And that's, this is when we ran into, uh, you know, the naysayers that we talked about earlier, you know, the people that, well, we've tried this before and failed. And what we found was that generally speaking, when we would talk about it with other networking, uh, no, with other engineers, uh, they were uh, very open to the idea and, you know, basically, okay, you know, let us let us see when this becomes a thing. Uh, managers, on the other hand, tended to be more um, more of the kind of against the idea, and I'm not really sure why that was. Um, if it's just a uh, a mentality, or uh, uh, we don't want to do something that relies on another team, um, I'm not sure where that maybe, came from. Maybe maybe two things. Maybe first, these guys used to be engineers, and they haven't adapted. Right. So they're still thinking the way they used to do it is the right way to do it, which happens. The other thing might be they might be thinking, well, you're going to take six months to go do this and you're not going to be doing other stuff while you're doing it. (laughs) How can I justify that? (laughs) So fortunately, we were lucky in that our direct management um, supported the idea. Right. And they allowed um, eventually four of us to split off from network engineering and become a software development team. Uh, focused specifically on network automation. Yeah, that that was we were we were uh, we were fortunate to have the backing of our of our direct management. To go back to the uh, Tom's question, as far as like you know, sort of that light bulb moment. Uh, there were a couple of guys over on the uh, compute SRE org that started really running with using the database as it became available uh, to model and store their uh, their their, da- their data. And that was when it kind of like started to trigger. Then eventually we started seeing, you know, completely unexpected use cases that we just, you know, we're, we're like, wow, that's really cool. Uh, you know, for example, um, you know, the DNS team, they eventually um, wrote uh, some code to do uh, periodic reviews into the database uh, looking for devices, right? And this is how actually they ended up populating uh, the DNS servers was driven out of the database. Uh, so if you wanted to add an entry, you know, you needed an A record or whatever in DNS, you didn't need to worry about going asking them to do it or going into, you know, the DNS uh, servers and doing, you know, conf D over there. Everything was just derived out of the database. So you create, uh, you know, anybody that needs to, you know, have a device, you create your device, you put your FQDN in, in there. And, you know, 10-ish minutes later, it'll be populated into DNS. So that was where we were at. Um, it was, a, unfortunately, polling-based. Um, we, uh, you know, had plans for eventually uh, being able to have a, 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 a bus that we can, you know, broadcast those kinds of changes out onto and, and do that in a, in a more uh, proactive fashion as opposed to reactive. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's really cool to see other teams kind of and take something and run with it in a way you just didn't imagine. Uh, and that was definitely, for me, a light bulb moment of like, wow, I think we have we have full adoption into the org, you know, now as across. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's interesting that you bring up that bit about the bus because I think this is one mistake people make when they go down this path of automating is they don't think large enough. They tend to think small and they build little, again, they build bespoke systems, right? It's very, mm-hmm. as you said, artisanal, right? You build this little system that does exactly what you want. And then in six months, you find out, well, if I would have done that, I could have done this as well. And you need to think from the beginning, where are my APIs? What does the software architecture look like? This is not something we think about as network engineers, is what software architects look what software architecture looks like. For sure. Uh, we spent um, definitely at least a month, maybe more, 
um, working on just the database schema, what the API was going to look like, um, doing uh, drawings of what we envisioned for, you know, how all of this was going to work together. Yeah, there was a lot of planning. It's not something you just like, yeah, day one starting writing some code. Yeah, you've got to plan. So how did how did the the, the software architecture evolve for you guys? I, did you did you have to get in and learn? Okay, here's how you here's how you do a database schema. Did you go get guidance from other people in those systems? How did you figure out how to start you know designing it? Yep. So when we started, we uh, fortunately had a database engineer that was uh, available to us. Um, so nice. he brought a lot of that wisdom. Uh, and as a result of his you know, choices, we kind of left it up to him. Um, we went with the SQL uh, Postgres database. If I were doing it you know, myself um, as a non-database expert, I would probably go with a NoSQL choice, maybe something like Mongo uh, for simplicity. Yeah, I mean, obviously, those are kind of religion, uh, you know, whether you prefer <laughs> SQL or non-SQL. Right, uh, right. Uh, but, uh, you know, to me, the, data, the, the database itself is just a means to an end, right? Like, it, I, I don't care per se about SQL or not SQL. I care about data and how I get access to that data. And right. as, you know, to spend as little time as possible having to worry about the technical details of that, I think non-SQL is just easier. Right? And for what we need can still achieve the same thing. So when you were building all of this, how did you come to a conclusion about how to store it? How did you, how, how are you storing it? Is it Yang? Is it key value pairs? Is it blobs? How are you actually storing it? And what led you to that decision to do it that way? Actually in the database is a combination of key value and blobs, JSON blobs. Um, it depends on the type of data that it is, as well as the kind of connections that we imagined making. So there you know, are places where we have a lot of rich connections between the tables. And so in those cases, you know, JSON blobs are not as efficient. So those will be more of a traditional you know, value pair with uh, IDs and new UIDs and you know, the whole database schema piece. And then areas where we want to be more flexible so we want to be able to have more of a template in the database. Uh, so for example, this is really useful when you start looking at things like interfaces because no vendor has any standard for what an interface is named or numbered. And even within vendors, right, there's variation on this, uh, you know, how you name and number things. And so uh, being able to templatize that in the database in a JSON blob is um gives you a lot of flexibility and does not lock you into any one thing as you move forward. Now, of course, that plays against the idea of having everything in a unified structure, though, right? So that you can go back and do analytic because now you have to build yep. interpreters to get things to where you want them to be. So what we did in that specific use case um, is we created our own standardized interface naming convention that we used across the board. And then in the actual details of a device model, so when we're modeling a particular device, um, we can specify what the vendor's interface naming convention is. So this way, across our code base, our config base, if I want to go do a lookup, I can use what I know is our standard. I'll go get the correct interface. And then we worry about the details of that vendor you know, down, down in, in the model of the device. So this was how we dealt with it um, as far as abstracting out that particular problem. 
Right. So that's a good example of using a thunk layer that will actually convert from one format to another. Yeah. Um, yeah. That allows you to keep that information, like you said, like in a JSON blob, so that you can use it if you need to. Like you need, it's there if you need it, but the coder or the person working on the network doesn't need to know that information. Correct. They need yes. to know it. Yeah. Because we don't, you know, yeah, you don't want to have to worry about is it, you know, E1 slash 1 slash 1 or E1 or Ethernet 1. Like, I mean, you know, this is, we don't want to have this in config, right? This is making our config very vendor device specific um, and not at all flexible or repeatable. You had mentioned something earlier that I had thought about, which was, I think, as we, you had mentioned about having kind of that monolithic core, you know, the big iron sitting in the middle. And uh, even if you're not operating in a large scale environment, as you look at moving towards cost-based networks with spine leaps, um, you, you start to have this this extension of equipment, right? Um, as we move away from big centralized iron in the middle. So I think this is applicable, you know, these concepts apply, you know, even if you're operating relatively small networks, right? Like the, the, the scale of your network isn't necessarily dictate whether or not you should be operating or thinking about operating in this kind of fashion. Right. Yeah, I know of a company um, that actually only has two EGP, EBGP speakers in their entire network. And yet they still use templatized. Then nobody, none of the network engineers working in the company touch those two routers at the CLI level ever. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of discipline. And, and, and again, you know, going back to if I'm going to troubleshoot something, well, I have this problem where if I don't have this stuff stored in a database, I don't have a time series of it, I cannot reconstruct the state of the network. And I don't think people realize just how valuable it is to be able to reconstruct the state of a network at the time of right. a failure. Yes, and understanding absolutely. It. Yeah, agreed. Well, I think one of the, so the whole idea of ephemeral infrastructure, I think is useful on a number of fronts. One, one way it's useful is that you can turn your vendors, instead of treating them as quote partners, whatever that means, you can turn your vendors into suppliers, right? This is a part. I have, I have created a, a collar that fits this into my infrastructure. And then when it doesn't work anymore, I, I write another little collar and, and fit something else into my infrastructure. And as long as you do the data modeling correct underneath, it's super easy. There's no more, no more quote lock-in for the appliances and components. Have you ever in, in, in your system, have you done anything like, has it helped you in a multi-vendor sort of way at all? Or do you not, do you use it like that or? Absolutely. It, when we first built the environment, uh, it was uh, a pretty much only one vendor to Cisco primarily, but within the Cisco world, we were using Nexus, we we're using iOS XR, we we're using iOS XE. So we had a, you know, a wide range of the operating systems uh, running there. And so we were able to abstract out those various uh, operating system nuances. And even though it's all under the Cisco umbrella, I think the concept is basically the same, right? Like, you know, you're just, I, I want to be able to write my config in an intent-based fashion as opposed to worrying about the nuance of this particular operating system. And I mean, I know, you know, that's kind of the dream of the Yang model. I don't know that we're ever going to get there, honestly, because I feel like when you look at the uh, the vendors, right, they are not particularly motivated to make it so that you can just swap out hardware, like you mentioned, right? right. Um, so I think it's kind of, you know, e- even if they support Yang, they're always going to have some little nuance, right, to make it so that it's different. 
um, so I think it's up to us to build our systems that we we are not uh, necessarily have this vendor lock in. Yeah, I totally agree. It's there. There's no no vendor will build a platform that will make a multi vendor strategy work for you. It's it's working against their own interests and their shareholders. Like why would they you know why would they say we're not going to differentiate ourselves in the marketplace? It wouldn't make any sense. So it's on us. Exactly. I totally agree. So so yeah, it is about differentiation, but I also think that what this can do is go beyond just multi-vendor and think about partnering with vendors at a different level in a different way. You're not thinking about like, again, we're still focused on the appliance. We're always like, well, the MX is so different than the EX is so different than the, the 7K is so different. Come on. There's switches. It's hardware. Okay. Where you add value in your network is through the software and the logical stuff that you're doing to make it work. And I don't think there's anything wrong with partnering with vendors at that level and saying the vendor can come in and help me, right? Do this or that, or understand how these things work. This concept of partnering with a vendor at the hardware level, hardware is hardware, guys. Get over it. I mean, I don't know what to say. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, currently I am at Dell Networking and, you know, not to go too far off onto uh, that sort of thing, but um, I feel like that is kind of the philosophy that, 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 that Dell Networking is taking um, of this idea of like, you know, you have the hardware layer and that's cool, um, but it's really about the software that's running on top of that. That's, that's right. it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, that, and that, that I think is the big deal. And that's actually a transition vendors are having to make, right? Is to stop. And say, the sales guys in particular. I mean, I don't want to beat up on the sales guys because yeah. they're... But no, if, 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 you're a traditional, do, right? if you're a traditional network vendor right now, like, yeah, I mean, the, 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 there, there's definitely a significant percentage, I feel like that, at least that I talk to, of network engineers that still feel, you know, they need to be buying from a traditional network vendor, um, Cisco, Arista, Juniper, what have you, right? And I always wonder, like, kind of like, like, like you said, uh, Russ, like, where does this, like, why are we still thinking this way? Like, why are we still feeling like, the hardware matters. Why do you care? It's a Cisco device. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, it's just an ASIC moving packets. Like, and I think that comes partially because of it's just it's a mental attitude, and it's driven by certifications. It's driven by training. Still, the same thing about tra- you know people are thinking in terms of if I'm going to go learn something, I'm going to go learn this box, and. The training is built that way too. We don't think about it technology-wise. Like we don't learn how BGP works. We learn how to configure BGP on X, whatever X is. We, we, we learn the implementation of BGP specific to a vendor. Yep. I actually had somebody in an interview once ask me, well, if I were going to configure BGP route reflectors to do this, what command line would I use? And my, <laughs> and my answer was, all right, if we're going to play the trivia game, I can play the trivia game, okay? I'll ask you a question this trivia, you ask me a question this trivia, and we'll see who ends up with the most points, okay? See who cries on me first. I've been doing this for 30 years. I can ask you questions about ATM and frame relay, and you probably don't even know what frame relay is. So, (laughs) is that really what we want to do here? sort of related topic uh we're really going all over the place on this which is kind of fun um 
But uh, someone had mentioned to me the other day, a coworker uh, had mentioned to me the other day, is like so we were talking about the leaf spine architecture, and uh, you know this new modern way of designing. And he's like, he, he was reminding me, he's like, you realize that cost networks were invented in I can't remember exactly fifties, nineteen fifties or something. First white yeah, paper written on it. Yeah. yeah, and it's like this is not new and modern, right? <laughs> it's yeah. just we finally we finally are implementing these ideas that were thought of quite a while ago. Right. Yeah. Well, and we're still. It's not even new in IT. I mean, if you look at how InfiniBand networks were built in the 90s, it's the same stuff. They have a subnet manager, which is a controller. It's, it's the same stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And, and we're still not implementing them correctly, in my opinion. And quite often, we're still trying to doing this hybrid. Oh, it's a hierarchy, but it's only a hierarchy. I, anyway, you don't even want to get me started on this because it's just... <laughs> I actually know. I'm curious. Tell me about what, what do you mean by that? So I see a lot of slide decks saying a CLO is a two-stage fabric rather than a three-stage hierarchy and where they pull all of their external links off of the spine switches because it looks like the core. Oh, it's like, it's not a hierarchical network. Okay. It's a different, get your mind wrapped around. This is a scale out design. It's not scale up. It's not the same concept. Stop trying to blend the concepts. They're different things. The the idea that you need to pull external links into a spine as opposed to it's just a fabric. Yeah, it's just a fabric. That's exactly right. And in fact, you don't want to pull things into the spine because that unbalances the the entire concept of the fabric. You can't grow. You've just ruined your scale model. That's exactly right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the point behind scale out, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I I think we're still in that mindset to some degree or another. And again, in the appliance mindset, I mean, I I still see it all the time. Oh, but this is my little... Sorry. No, I was going to say, I said, maybe, I guess this is something that, you know, kind of we need education on, right, in the, in the industry as far as, like, what is proper clothes design, um, you know, as, uh, you know, getting out of this mentality of the, you know, core distribution access. Yeah. As a matter of fact, in a week and a half, I'm doing a live webinar for Pearson on fabric design. And this is, I beat up on this and this entire, I just go through this constantly. I'm like, just stop this. This is like, it's a fabric. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, um, it's really, it's really painful sometimes trying to get, trying to get people to see it the other way around. I was going to say, I guess if you're still in the idea of, you know, like I'm buying expensive proprietary hardware with expensive ASICs, I only have my high speed ports available on my core, quote unquote, right? And and, and now the idea that I have pervasive high bandwidth available across the whole fabric um, with, you know, uh, with, you know, merchant silicon chips, um, that's, yeah. It's, it's this new new way of thinking, different way of thinking. It is. Yeah, it's completely different. So one thing I was going to ask you is, um, it sounds like you're storing a lot of data in this one database, right? Mm, so yes. are you doing time series or are you just storing the data as it sits? Are you actually saying I can go back and rebuild the state or are you just storing the data as it is? Because I know when I worked on building a system, something like this at a, at a former company, there was a lot of tension between those two concepts of building yep. a time series database or having full state. Yep. So we started with the immediate need, which was just desired state. Um, no historical record um, and no, you know, not, no time series information um, because that was, you know, we needed to, I, I guess it's, it's kind of the idea of you, I don't need to build the perfect solution. I need to build the solution that works and gets me out the door. 
you know, so I can, you know, first to build a little skateboard and then we can build a bicycle and then we can build a car and, you know, eventually we build a plane, right? But all along the way, we're using this thing, right? Like it's functioning um, as opposed to if I just try to build the plane, I'm going to spend five years of, of having nothing functioning. The approach we took was that simple, let's just get something out the door that works. Um, and then we started adding on, right? So definitely the goal was to uh, be able to have that time series information uh, for historical, not only just for, uh, you know, rebuilding the state of the network, but also having a record of changes that were made and um, by who, and, you know, being able to keep track of this data as it goes through its life. So this is something we added to it. Um, this definitely adds a lot more in complexity, adds a lot more resource requirements to the database as it's starting to be a lot more active. Uh, so, you know, having to be able to scale out the, um, scale out the database, uh, <laughs> I guess, similarly to the way you scale out the network, right? Like you have to think right. about your database yeah. design. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the key right now, right? Is scale out rather than scale up is to think about how mm -hmm. to scale out. And this is where it drives you into edge computing, um, being able to compute on the edge, getting away from having big boxes with big failover plans, being able to uh, flow around problems, the original concepts behind packet-based networking, yep. right? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is a huge deal. It's a, it, again, it's a total change in the way we look at things. Yeah, so, I mean, we definitely, so uh, to extend on that idea, um, you know, we started off with the, uh, you know, just a single instance of the database running as, you know, the master, and that was it. And then over time, we expanded it, you know, to adding uh, read-only slaves, um, distributing it out to other sites, uh, you know, so we had uh, redundancy and a failover, and, you know, as, as the tool became more and more a key component to the way operations functioned, um, and that if it wasn't functioning, we would take an outage. Uh, you know, it, it grew in its uh, requirements for how we maintained it and, and ran it. I wanted to I wanted to ask you, Tim, a kind of a philosophical question. In my mind, I've always taken the approach that there's there's what should be on the infrastructure and what is, and what should be is what I would call like that configuration state stuff. Like, what should it be? And then what is, is how does the control plane look at this moment, right? You're not going to put stuff like how long has an OSPF neighbor been up in any database ever, right? Yep. There's going to be, but there is some stuff that I feel like is in a, a kind of a second bucket, which is this is your time series and your graphing. And, and, I, and I know this is different from what we just talked about. It's kind of a different angle on it. But what, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Does, does it always, always belong? What should be and what is in the same platform? Is there ever a case to kind of disaggregate those from each other? Oh, yeah. So um, this is a interesting conversation I was just actually talking with someone yesterday about that sometimes when I uh, maybe I don't articulate this very well when I say single source of truth what I mean is that a given piece of data should only exist authoritatively in one location that doesn't necessarily mean I only have one location that I use for all the things, right? Um, right? Because, it, you know, particularly if you're in a small org, that might work. Um, but if you're in a very large org or as you start to scale, um, these, this may no longer function, right? So, um, you know, so maybe you do split these things out into various places. Um, but so long as there is only one for any piece of data, we should, uh, we should never be duplicating data. Um, in, in, in my philosophy, right? Like I, I philosophically, I think we store data once and only once. Yeah. And that's the whole idea behind database normalization anyway, right? Is that don't, mm -hmm. don't make copies of this stuff. And mm -hmm. yeah. I, 
I agree. Because, uh, you know, I mean, uh, and maybe I'll just expound on it just because you and I are on the same page, but maybe others are not, right? Like what, what I have always found is that, you know, if you, if you start duplicating data, inevitably it will get out of sync. Um, and then we get back to this versioning problem of who's authoritative, right? Like um, which one is the right one? Um, and if I'm using the wrong one, I'm going to go push out changes to the network or to wherever that are incorrect, right? Um, and uh, now we're going to have, conflict problems and now we're trying to resolve the conflicts and so why do all that just have one place that you know that's the authoritative place that's where you go get the answer of course depending on your environment there might be scenarios where you need to cache data um just like how we cache you know dns records right and you set a 2tl on it and you you know right. set it cache it for a few seconds or what have you for the run of the job that kind of thing that's fine um so long as it's not like an actual storage of data you know um if it yeah yeah that's a that's a really important principle cache is different than data store Yes. No. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yep. And this this is basically cap theorem is what you're talking about. You're beating your head against cap theorem, and you've got to make the choice between storing it in one place or partitioning it. And if you partition it, then you're going to have either accessibility or or consistency problems. That's just the way it is. And the you know this is something you face with software defined networking and having the single controller in the sky. And essentially, all a distributed control plane is is a the extreme end of saying I care less about the consistency than I do the accessibility of the data. I'm going to have an ultimately partitioned database and the consistency can be a little bit different, which is why you get micro loops and, and drop packets and different routing protocols, stuff like that. That's, that's just an application of cap theorem. So yeah, you're facing exactly the same thing, but you're taking it the other direction. I'm going to have a single database, so to speak, maybe distributed over multiple machines, um, but then the synchronization is internal rather than external. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, excellent. So I don't have anything else, Tom. Any other questions? No, this has been no. great. Thanks, Tim. Yes, this has been a great, yeah. great talk, Tim. And, um, you know, we'll get you back on the hedge to talk about something different in the future. That's uh, you know, like I said, this it's has been very, a very fun chat. Yeah, it's very, very formal around here. You can go take your tuxedo off now and uh, <laughs> relax for a little bit. <laughs> so, great. And uh, thanks for joining us for this episode of The Hedge. Uh, Tom, people can reach you on Twitter only. Is that right? Twitter and LinkedIn. And LinkedIn. Okay. Still not blogging. I don't know. I'm going to say it every week until you start <laughs> Until blogging. I do it. Yeah. <laughs> And Tim, do you blog or just Twitter, I, LinkedIn? I do, I do not blog. I am on LinkedIn. That's where you can reach me. Yep. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, I've almost given up on Twitter personally. <laughs> 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 I post stuff there, but I, I really don't log into it. So, yeah. All right. Well, thanks for joining us for this episode of The Hedge, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you for joining us. You can find The Hedge at rule11.tech.